HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo, growing the best and most interesting heirloom beans available. Learn more at ranchogordo.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. Most of us in the world live in urban areas. And so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents? And how much more could it provide if um, we just made it a priority? Tune in to Meet and 3. HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Daniel Bender, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, whose current issue is entirely devoted to COVID dispatches. In it, authors from around the world offer short, intimate portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic, and hosts from the journal's editorial collective will be joined by some of the featured authors to share their stories and to hear how things have progressed since their original submissions in March and April 2020. My guest this week is Jessica Carbone. Jessica is a doctoral candidate in American Studies at Harvard University, where she's working on a dissertation at the intersection of food studies, education, and entertainment. She's a former cookbook editor and currently the co-president of the Graduate Association for Food Studies. She's also Gastronomica's managing editor, which means, Jessica, that you read all of the COVID dispatches as they came in. Jessica, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm thrilled to be part of this series. You know, your, your piece reflects another side, yet another side of your multifaceted life, raising a child in the midst of a pandemic. And as you know, I, I also have a child and I'm about to send my own child to school on Tuesday and she's nervous, I'm nervous, and we spend a lot of time comforting each other 
talking about what her lunches are going to be. So your piece really speaks to me, even if my child is many trimesters older than yours. I find actually reading your piece very, very comforting. Can you bring us back to April, March, perhaps, of this year? Walk us through what what your day might have looked like? Sure. Um, and I, I'm glad that you found the piece comforting because I feel like it was written in a moment of high anxiety, though I'm starting to learn now that I am nine to 10 months into being a parent that anxiety is just part of the, the game. Um, so back in March and April, I was dealing with a four to five month old who refused to nap who was home with me and my husband 24-7 as we were both attempting to work from home and navigating a schedule that we were not really cognizant of how to navigate. Um, Trying to structure a day around an infant in general is just incredibly difficult. But when you are really in a position of not knowing if you can leave your home, whether you're going to be able to get any kind of reprieve from family or friends, whether you're going to have any time to just process your own thoughts professionally or personally, it's a very frightening um, and very harrowing tightrope walk every single minute. Um, I should say that back when I began graduate school three years ago, my husband and I had always thought that we might have a child during graduate school because it's not a nine to five schedule. And that's one of the great gifts of being in academia. However, not having a nine to five schedule does not mean that any aspect of this is easy. And I think the pandemic sending everyone into their homes 24 seven really made that clear. So what was it like just to turn to for briefly to your experience as the guest, as the managing editor, You read the pieces as they came in. Did you find it a little overwhelming at times? I found it incredibly inspiring and incredibly daunting because as the managing editor, I was seeing hundreds of submissions coming in from all corners of the globe with people recounting the many different ways in which they were trying to survive this moment in world history. And I knew that I had wanted to write something as a submission, not having any idea whether it would be accepted. And each piece I read and directed to various members of the collective to review, I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way they're going to take my piece about working from home with a baby. Um, But I think the final collection that you can find in the issue really shows the breadth of experiences that people are having in this moment. And the fact that no one scenario is free of pain and conflict and worry. Um, So I'm really honored that I had the opportunity to read everything. But I also am incredibly grateful that my story can be one perspective that's included in the final collection. Was there a particular moment for you, though, when you decided, okay, this is what I need to write about? For myself, I didn't submit anything because there were so many things going on in my in my head, my stomach, uh, that I just, I, I, I'm in awe, really, of people who actually did have that one moment for them to to write about. Was there a particular moment for you? 
I had been thinking for a while about, and this was pre-pandemic as well, writing something about the relationship between being a food studies scholar and someone who's worked in food for her entire professional life and suddenly being a food source. And I had found the entire experience of caring for an infant needing to be the food supply for this very hungry baby, really fascinating, just from a scholarly perspective. And when the pandemic hit, I was suddenly confronted with this very materialized manifestation of that in our freezer. We had half the freezer dedicated to frozen breast milk because we had anticipated her being at daycare. And then half the freezer dedicated to as much food as we could fit in it because we genuinely didn't know when we'd be able to go to the grocery store. So that to me then clarified what the lens was going to be. Um, This question of provisioning and making sure that you can provision for yourself and for a growing child at the same moment in a moment where no particular source of food is 100% guaranteed. This seems like a great moment to invite you to read your submission for our listeners. Okay. This piece is titled The Stockpile and the Letdown. April 2nd, 2020, Boston, Massachusetts. It's March 16th, week one of Shelter in Place, and our freezer shelves and my breasts are bursting. In fall 2019, I am eight months pregnant with a normal appetite, but an insatiable impulse to stockpile. Between teaching and scrambling to bring home materials for my research, I keep a running list of things to stash in the freezer. Chicken soup, lentils and puff pastry, baked pasta, and enchiladas. Anything to nuke and eat in under 10 minutes. I quiet the hum of pre-parenthood anxiety with dreams of spicy peanut stew, eggplant parmesan, and spanakopita, of homemade-ish food to get us through the fourth trimester. Soon after our daughter is born, we make room in the freezer for her, bags and bags of pumped breast milk anticipating her future months at daycare. The prospect of her future feedings overtakes me. I sip woody cups of fenugreek tea, stash almonds and dark chocolate in my backpack, and fill and refill my water glass, all while binging stories of women who stashed hundreds of ounces, pumping so much that they could give it away. I tell myself I can switch to formula any time that I'm doing my best, yet on nights when my husband offers to give her a bottle, I more often than not demure. Better for me to wake for her and to let the stockpile grow. By late April, with daycare closed and all of us at home, the breast milk competes with frozen steak, broccoli, chunks of ginger and lemongrass, containers of bacon and duck fat. Our landscape is bounded by apartment walls. Our clocks run by Zoom calls with family, diaper changes, and the screeching siren of our daughter's voice demanding to be fed. Her hunger structures my day and the only thing that silences her is me. If there's ever a Hollywood blockbuster about the pandemic, the constant inescapable sound of a baby screaming would make an excellent soundtrack. I was lucky while pregnant. I had zero nausea, zero cravings, and my diet remained relatively unchanged. 
I was unbothered by the didactic messaging in the pregnancy blogosphere telling expectant mothers to load up on flax and fish oil and kale and whole grains. If self-sacrifice in the name of self-care was part of motherhood, I was well prepared. Yet by April 1st, the cravings have hit me full force. I hunger for the synthetic. Salt and vinegar potato chips, peanut butter M&Ms, sugary cereal. Having nowhere to go makes me want to eat like a stoner. To pair a bowl of ice cream with a giant tumbler of bourbon. The dream of eating only for myself as someone who has not herself become a food source. Soon, sooner than expected, the pandemic hits close to home. My mother calls to tell me that my sister's father-in-law has died from a heart attack, accompanied by a fever of unknown origin. And so my sister, her husband, and mother-in-law must self-quarantine together. I pack them a bag of supplies, a giant bottle of acetaminophen, coloring books, good reading, and bad movies. The bag is a gesture of magical thinking, as though they'll be stuck in bed on a school day, nothing more than a bad flu, I tell myself. I extract a brick of frozen cookie dough, a forethought during the maternity stockpiling, when I made an offhand remark requesting freshly baked cookies, and my husband turned out a loaf of dough as big as a watermelon. I never imagined our inventory would be depleted this way. I plot future grocery deliveries like I'm putting a message in a bottle. Each one feels like a long-anticipated reunion with normalcy via ratatouille, sag paneer, and burgers and fries. I diligently nurture my sourdough starter, and it ends up bubbling and oozing out of the container and up into the windowsill. I take it as a sign of progress. We order milkshakes from a local ice cream place, an old-fashioned parlor that recently celebrated its 50th anniversary, but now looks likely to shutter for good. We pick up our shakes curbside and walk home, masks on, delaying the first sip until we can wipe down the cups and wash our hands. And I feed, and I pump, and I feed, and I pump, and the stockpile grows. In late March, our daughter spikes a fever. First 99, then 100, then 101.7. Nothing unusual, her pediatrician says over the phone. Quite common for post-vaccination infants. It's not COVID, she tells us. Get off the internet because it's going to make you think that everything you see is COVID. Think horses, not zebras. Everywhere I hear zebras. We slip a syringe of cherry-flavored baby Tylenol into her cheek, and before she can burble the syrup out from her lips, I slip her onto my breast. She slowly swallows the milk with the medicine, and both of us are sticky for hours afterwards. We are told to keep an eye on her appetite, because if the appetite remains, the fever will soon fade. And so her hunger becomes a beacon of hope. Her normally bright, smiling face turns red with frustration and builds to a wail of total conviction. Yet, as soon as she latches on, her breathing slows, her fists unclench, and I soon hear a steady gulping that tells me she's settled in, relaxed in a way I haven't been in weeks. The thing no one tells you about parenthood is not how human it makes you feel, but how mammalian how primal and uncomplicated the needs you fulfill, the need to be held, rocked, comforted, and fed. 
you become hyper-conscious of your body, the crackle of skin dried out by hand-washing, the depth of the breath in your healthy lungs, the coolness of your fingers on a baby's burning forehead. Your pulse rises when she screams and falls when she's quiet and rises again when she's too quiet. She eats. The fever breaks. I think about the novel Room by Emma Donahue, the story of a mother and child held captive in an 11 by 11 foot room for years on end. I wonder if we'll look back on this time, if we can look back on it at all, as the boy and his mother did, as a crater, a hole where something happened. Or if, as parents often do, I'll forget about the constant anxiety, the constant hoarding, And just remember this, clinging close, the click and the swallow, and the momentary silence. This is something I can do. Thank you, Jessica. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo. Over the past 19 years, Rancho Gordo has led the revival of heirloom beans, taking the lowly bean from a healthy but neglected member of the vegetable family to a near superstar status ingredient. From growing the best and most interesting beans available to making sure all crops are fresh and a pleasure to cook with, Rancho Gordo's mission is to encourage cooks to experience and enjoy the unique flavors of heirloom beans. Rancho Gordo produces nearly 30 varieties of heirloom beans and lentils, as well as corn, grains, chilies, and other cooking ingredients. You can learn more at ranchogordo.com. That's R-A-N-C-H-O-G-O-R-D-O.com. And we are back. You are listening to Meant to be Eaten and to a special podcast series with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. This is Daniel Bender with our guest, Jessica Carbone. Jessica, even before the virus spread, I'm struck that you were already thinking about stockpiling food, like many new parents do. But can you reflect on how stockpiling for the fourth trimester merged with or maybe conflicted with stockpiling for a pandemic? (laughs) Such a great question, Dan. Thank you. Um, I think in many ways I've always been a little bit of a stockpiler uh, for the purposes of being ready to cook whatever it is that struck my fancy. I'm one of those people that deals with stress by cooking. And it is really interesting that as I was preparing to uh, deliver my daughter in fall of 2019, um, I was constantly reading from various food writers I respected and hearing from friends who'd had children that they just had no time or energy to cook in the first few months after their child was born. And I thought, oh, not me. I'm going to want to cook because that's how I'll deal with being stressed out. But I tried to take their advice and welcomed anyone who wanted to put a container of soup or a pre-made casserole in my freezer. So we had already had a few things put away with the anticipation of not really being able to leave the house, not having the energy to do any original cooking or shopping in the first couple of months after she was born. 
What then happened after she was born, of course, and when she was about three to four months old when the pandemic started, is that the very ability to go out and re-up the supplies to do whatever kind of stockpiling you needed to do really came into question. And I should mention that I'm incredibly fortunate to live in an area with several good grocery stores within walking distance. I have family in the area. So if I ever truly ran out of something, I had resources to call on. And there was a period during the pandemic where between my household and the households of other family members in the area, we were all exchanging goods here and there. So we'd call each other up and say, I'm out of hot sauce. Do you have hot sauce? Or I snagged a 12 pack of toilet paper. Are you low? Can I get you any? So we had this very interesting kind of economy going on. Um, And yet none of us felt entirely comfortable being able to go to a store at a moment's notice, Um, particularly when my sister and her husband went under their own quarantine, as I mentioned in the piece. So it was a moment of really battling my own impulses to um, go easy on myself by ordering out initially in parenthood and using the cooking to de-stress. And then this entirely new level of stress added from the inability to go grocery shopping at a moment's notice. And it's still really difficult to not have the freedom to walk into a local grocery store and be able to pick up whatever it is I need. The planning has become that much more intense. So I'm, I'm interested in the, the moment where you pause there, Jessica, and you, you almost were reminding yourself as, as, much as, our, as much as your listeners about the, the feeling of being fortunate, where you live, social class, whatever. Did you find yourself thinking about that as you were able to feed your own child? Hugely so. I'm really glad that I have a chance to talk about that because it was something that I thought very deliberately about as I was reading the various submissions to this issue. Because my situation as a person who has a lot of privilege to leverage financially, uh, culturally, ethnically, and racially, I'm in a position where I don't have my own personal safety put into question that often in my life. And that is a tremendous amount of privilege. I'm incredibly privileged to be able to have an income still in my household, to be in a dual income household, to live near family, to have had a work schedule that was flexible enough that I didn't immediately have to find a backup care solution when our daughter's daycare closed down. That said, I don't think there's any easy way to move through this moment. Um, And certainly one thing that I have pushed against is the number of people who've said, oh, what a tremendous gift it is to be home with your child 24-7 during this first year of her life. It is, of course, a tremendous gift to be able to do that. And it's been absolutely amazing and life-changing to be able to spend this time with her at home. But that doesn't mean it's not free of anxiety, particularly when, as so many parents experience in their child's first year of life, she's constantly doing things that I want to share with the people I love. And I can't do that except over Zoom. Granted, she is a baby who has come to love Zoom, but it is not the same as being able to reach out to other families in our neighborhood and really begin her introduction to the world. 
So that's been a that's been a bit challenging. I can relate to that. You know, in fact, just before we got on the air, we had a chance to meet our our grandnephew for the very first time. And there he was in his stroller. There we were on a porch 10 feet away, handing over handing over food. And it was a, a very difficult moment, but very joyous at the same time. And it does make me think about the change over time. You remember reading the dispatches as they came in, and it feels like a, a lifetime ago. In fact, it is a lifetime ago, your daughter's lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> the, the virus itself has changed. The lockdown rules have changed. So has the politics around the lockdown changed. And baby grow, babies grow quickly. How has that changed for you? How has the experience of feeding and the, and the feelings about feeding changed, perhaps as your daughter is, is experimenting with new kinds of food? Well, I'll tell you that, you know, at the time of this recording, she's now almost 10 months old and she is eating real food now. Um, She's almost entirely off breastfeeding. So on the one hand, it's liberating in the sense that now the fun part of being a decent home cook Uh, kicks in. I get to make things for her and see how she responds and get those fantastic first taste photographs and what have you and the messes, the messes that come with them. Um, But on the other hand, it's really a moment of tremendous um, loss of intimacy or the intimacy has changed a lot. Um, So it's an interesting thing to be thinking about what might've happened at this point in her life had there not been a pandemic? Who would she be interacting with? What things would she be tasting out in the world? Um, and it's just sort of the unknown that we won't really get a chance to to visit again. That said, you know, as I was talking about the the tremendous joy of being able to be here during her first her first year of life and spending so much time with her, one of the very few bright spots of being in this pandemic is that she has absolutely no idea what is going on or seems not to have any idea. And she's joyous and smiling and really thrilled to see people's faces on Zoom and to interact with us and to start toddling around the house. And we are looking forward to being able to share her with daycare again, if only because then she'll get to show off all those things that she's discovered about herself with the other kids at daycare. And living in Massachusetts, where the transmission rate at the moment is very low, is a real gift. That said, it could change at any second, and we're not taking that for granted. So our level of safeguarding is still very high. Jessica, you were talking about what your daughter will and won't remember. And I do feel, and I've mentioned this to my daughter, that that she's really generation 19 and that she will remember this for the rest of her life. What do you think that you're going to be telling your daughter years from now? And how do you think, can you reflect on how this might change your own ongoing thoughts about feeding your child? What will I be telling her years from now? That's a hard question, I know. It's a hard question because on the one hand, I'd love to not tell her anything. But on the other hand, I think, and any number of scholars on this issue have written about this extensively, I think this is 
not going to be the last pandemic of her lifetime. And that's devastating to me to think about in the same way that it's devastating for me to think about the fact that she will feel the bulk of the effects of climate change in a way that my husband and I will likely not. And that's a responsibility I I take very seriously. On the one hand, I don't want her to go through life afraid of what's coming. Now, it will be a while before we walk out into the world and touch everything and touch everybody in exactly the way we did before. Um, I don't know the next time that we'll bring her to restaurants with us. And she was really good at going to restaurants with us in the first two to three months of her life. Um, So that's a little sad to me, especially because restaurants are so often where we get our taste for the first time of cuisines that are not... uh, not inherently part of our home cultures. And I look forward to introducing her to those things. Um, But I also hope that in the question of how will I be feeding her going forward, um, I hope this is an opportunity for her to learn as much as she can from what I'm able to cook for her. And it's a moment for me to challenge myself to think about all the things I want to bring into her world that would otherwise be provided by the wider world. Um, It makes it that much more important for us to be able to create the food experience that we want her to have, nutritionally and flavorly, flavorfully, I suppose. Um, So it's, it's gonna be a high wire act. But again, from everything that friends have said to me, that is what parenting is. You're constantly trying to craft the reality that your children get to live in and how and reckon with how that runs up against the reality of the world we actually live in. I feel like that's a beautiful place to leave us. And I, I think what you've given us here is that in the midst of the social distancing, which we've all learned to be separate from each other, but you've given us a portrait of intimacy through food, and, and, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dan. The COVID Dispatches series is produced in partnership with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. More essays like this one shared today can be found in issue 20.3, available right now on the journal's University of California Press website online.ucpress.edu backslash gastronomica. Meant to be eaten listeners can enjoy a 30% off discount of single print copies of this issue with the discount code GASTROAUG2020. That's G-A-S-T-R-O-A-U-G 2020. And that's valid through June 2021. If those All that information is hard to find. It will be on our podcast notes, as well as on the Gastronomica webpage. Thank you again. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.